It's time to breathe easier this allergy season with Breathe Right Nasal Strips. With instant nasal congestion relief for up to 12 hours, you can spend your time on your terms, not on your noses. Stuffy nose from outdoor allergens? No problem. We got you. Allergy season just turned into stripping season. Instant relief from nasal congestion anytime, anywhere. Need more convincing? Click the banner below and get a free sample. Breathe right. Get your strip on. Use as directed. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Hey, welcome to Dr. Podcast. Everybody. I appreciate you all being here. Uh, as always, we have great guests, great suggestions coming our way. You can send those to uh, contact at drdrew.com. And uh, do check out some of the other stuff we got going on. I think you would find the uh, streaming show. Uh, we call it Ask Dr. Drew. It's Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday at 3 o'clock. You can get it at drdrew.tv. And uh, like I always say, send your send your suggestions. We're happily, happy to take them. Today, Dr. Owen Muir, he uh, has many things going on. The Substack is the Frontier Psychiatrists, uh, all one word with the article in front of it, the Frontier Psychiatrist. Uh, you can check out his Substack there. There's a forthcoming book called Don't Panic, a psychiatrist guide to handling your life's most difficult problems. Obviously, Dr. Muir is a psychiatrist. He's also boarded in child and adolescent psychiatry as well. And uh, there's a lot we can talk about. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, longtime fan. Your public health efforts over the years have uh, inspired me since high school. You, you know, it's funny that, thank you for saying that, that you you see it as a public health effort because that was my original intent, which was I, I was I was a medical resident and I was up to my eyeballs in AIDS patients. We, were, we just started calling it AIDS. It was called GRIDS six months before. Yeah. And, uh, and I had an opportunity to go on a radio show. Anthony Fauci was out there saying, you got to educate, got to educate. He kept saying there are going to be 2 million dead. 2 million are going to die if we don't get out there and educate. And uh, so I had this opportunity. I thought, oh, I'll take, maybe I should take this kind of seriously. I should do this. And I was shocked that young no one was talking to young people in 1984, 1985 about anything related to sexual health, let alone this horrible disease that was just devastating the gay community. It was just an incredible sort of aha moment for me. And I always saw what I was doing as anchoring it in medical and public health and trying to change health behaviors, that kind of thing. So thank you for noticing that. Well, I, it, part of it, it I mean, I, I've been listening since high school, and uh, I, I ended up going to the same undergraduate institution as yourself, Amherst College. Uh, and and one of my kind of, you know, soapboxes is that if we're going to communicate, we should do so effectively. Yeah. Oh, my God. I, I, I'm with you on that. And and in a way that, that changes behavior, right? Yeah. And so, so what we discovered during, we have so much to talk about, what we discovered during uh, HIV, it took about eight to 10 years for people to come to this conclusion and, and then a discipline developed around it. But we, it's what we were doing. You, the way you change health behavior, particularly of young people is who we were targeting is a narratives, relatable sources where particularly 
you highlight the consequences of choices, right? You go, oh, well, that see what they did? See what happened? If you, hmm, maybe you don't want to do that. Then, uh, so it's got to be a relatable situation, relatable. Doesn't that look be exactly like you, but it has to be something you can relate to. Music, humor, that's it. <laughs> You're done. And, and somehow what was so astonishing to me as COVID broke out, that that was just thrown away all of a sudden. It just was tossed out the window. Did you notice that as well? I did and made a COVID era podcast uh, in, in a you know, feeble attempt to try to combat that. Uh, from I was here in, in New York City and running a psychiatric practice that stayed open doing interventional care with accelerated transcranial magnetic stimulation and the first intranasal esketamine program in New York. And all the therapy went virtual and all the ongoing care it, that required being in person continued. Um, every ECT unit in the city shut down and, uh, and we kept going and it saved lives. Of course, of course. I mean, it, it would have been, it's folly to have done what was recommended on a, on a large scale. Thank, thank you for, you keep going. But let's talk about the uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation because that's uh, what's going on there. And you mentioned to me that the, the before the mics heated up, that the new era had arrived because it's functional MRI directed. And what I started to say to you, I said, I'll, let me bring it up on air, is that I used to go up to Stanford once in a while and report on some of their functional MRI stuff and at the t- this is a while ago, and it seemed to me that pain medicine was driving some of it. It, it, it. They were sort of trying to find other ways to modulate pain reactivity. Did, did you? Am I right on that, or was that did that was that abandoned? I, I haven't had any touch with, in touch with them lately. So you're correct that it's a great avenue. Uh, you're correct that there's yet more data to go, uh, and I have some that's published myself. So huh. yes, uh, but it's not for a variety of boring reasons that have now more or less been solved um, thanks to regulatory changes. Um, all of this ends up kind of back solving the payment models. And so in as much as we need to be convincing to other humans about public health information, because we have to think about who we're speaking to and their minds, yeah. we also need to think about the minds of the people who need to pay for it. Yes. Uh, and it's a big failure of that over and over again, which, you know, the Anna Freud Center in the United Kingdom would call mentalizing. Well, it, it's it, it, I noticed in some of your stuff that mentalizing capacity was in your uh, in your vocabulary and that intrigued me immediately. Right. So I was we're going to we're going to dig into that a little bit, if you don't mind. Don't mind at I'm going to let you talk about the TMS and the ketamine and all sure. that stuff too, but th- this is the part that kind of fascinates me because I never get a chance to talk to anybody about this particular topic because yeah. no one seems to dig deep into it. They kind of have a, a brush by understanding of it. So I, I, I hearken from the world of interpersonal neurobiology, which is at the core, it grew out of psychoanalysis that, that wanted a relational model that was based on, you know, science based on something hard, you know, hard, some hard biology. And it's, it, it sort of been finding its way for many, many years. But one of the names I came across, and I think, I believe he was also um, an Anna Freud sort of uh, uh, trained individual was Peter Fonagy. And Peter Fonagy wrote that first book on mentalizing, right? Yeah. And I read it. I, I didn't. I. It was a difficult read. I don't know if you've ever read it, but it, I, I have. It's not an easy read. Uh, but I've heard him speak many times, and I, and I, for me, what he did for me. I know he did a lot of other stuff, and you can speak to that. But for me, what he did was 
operationalize sort of in space. Uh, and in, in and then Stephen Porges with the polyvagal theory sort of worked this out of even a little further, but Fonagy was already on to it. You know, what are the mechanisms that build this capacity for emotional regulation and mentalizing? Yeah. I'm serving that to you now. Go ahead. Sure. I'll take it. Um, okay. So Peter, it, it was a teacher of mine. Um, oh my God. I, I am one of five mentalization based treatment supervisors. So hold on. America. So stop for yeah. a second. Is he as, 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 clever uh from a comedic standpoint as he seems to me sometimes so he is and anthony bateman who is his co-developer is even funnier okay okay because they have that that dry british humor that makes me okay. fall out of my chair once in a while did you yeah. were you in england for the training or where yes. you go scotland or whatever several several times over yeah was he in scotland or england where, where... so peter is a hungarian immigrant and and when he was 12 he was a patient at the anna freud center interesting and he's now their ceo um, wow. it's a, it's a not-for-profit, uh, and what he worked out, you know, in the middle of an audience of psychoanalysts was that, you know, they were brought in essentially, uh, to solve the problem of patients with brittle diabetes who couldn't be helped. That's where it came from. What? And what they found, yeah, yeah. And they were squirting their insulin down the drain. He, he, he said he, when I've heard him speak, he talked about dealing with violent men in prisons and things. So that's Anthony Bateman. Um, okay. Okay. his co-developer who, okay. who took the lead on that. And I, and I've actually published on that and with, with narcissistic personality disorder as well. Uh, keep going. So, um, here, here's kind of the, the people were doing crazy things, right? Squirting your insulin down the drain doesn't do a lot for your diabetes. No. And, and you do that when you don't have words for your feelings. Uh, and, and they realized, you know, they did some research and they said, well, you take this video, you know, of Mary Ainsworth and the strange situation early childhood stuff. No, oh, man, you're going to have to, I, I know exactly what you're talking about, but you're going to have to unpack yeah. that for people. So for, for really early on for kids, we're trying to work out what our world is going to be like. And we have a system in our brain that lets us adapt along different pathways, depending yeah. on our early environment. Now, I want to make sure I, I'm, I'm clear on this. You're talking about their attachment system or some Correct. other system? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so we have brains that are creating models of other brains. My theory on this, uh, which is not really my theory, it's Adam uh, Safran from Hopkins, but there was a gene duplication event about 300 million years ago in the Cambrian explosion. So if you see fish swim in schools, yeah, how do they do that? Yeah. They don't exchange notes. No. But they still do, right? Yep, yep. And that's by creating models in their brains of other fish. Mm. And so they're synchronizing with the, the model of the other fish, and then they have the visual input that lets them correct the model. Mm-hmm. And humans are using that same fish hardware, which is a serotonin 5-HT2A receptor gene duplication event, plus other things. You know where that pathway is? I do. Okay, yeah. keep going. Um, but this created a cheat code for, for human relatedness that's really energy efficient. Because instead of having to like plug two organisms into each other in some way or hand instructions, yeah. you can just use rhythms and synchronizing. And mm-hmm. so we're keeping time kind of emotionally, and, and this is actually quite literal. If you listen to patch clamp recordings with you know brain surgery, you can hear changes firing. When you do an fMRI, you can see those functional connectivity changes inside a brain, uh, and you can also understand how they sync up between minds. And so the same reason we're able to dance together in a flash mob, right? Because we can look at another person and guess where they're going. Mm-hmm is the same reason we can get into a fight or not get into a fight with other people. Mm-hmm. And, and so what 
Peter Fonagy discovered was that the attachment system prepared us for that dance. Mm. But it's a functional connectivity in the brain issue. And so the same things we're looking at on those fMRIs that we're going to use later to talk about accelerated depression treatment, well, those are the same systems that are working to synchronize one human with another and are, you know, neuromodulated by psychotherapy with mentalization-based treatment. And so when we feel understood, we build trust and then we can learn something new. And it's, and, and it's not just feeling understood, correct? It's feeling felt. It, right? it is, it's, it's being held in mind. Yes. Yes. By, by someone who you imagine is like you, like you said. Yeah. And, and Peter pointed out vividly for me that the second order representation with the tiny musculature of the face is really important for that transmission mm-hmm. uh, f- to feel felt, to feel yeah. some part of your brain is receiving that information. I don't know if it's the, uh, you know, prefrontal cord uh, where you could tell me probably where that is it's a bunch it it turns out and and it it ends up you know when we're in when we feel understood the whole system cools down the amygdala which controls fear stops running the show and we are able to do more creative things together because we're not going to get murdered so but the amygdala this has been something i've been thinking about and and have not really in a very not a very sophisticated way and i haven't read anything that sort of explains this really other than fonagy's material drawn off the vagal theory which is that um the amygdala is so embedded in the body uh and we have so many screwball systems in the body and that we don't understand. I, I just ask simple questions like, why is the sympathetic plexus along the spine organized the way it is? Why? Mm-hmm. Why is that organized like that? Because <laughs> it keeps us alive. I, I know I understand what it's doing, <laughs> but why is it organized like that? And then, and then what are these different? Right. Me too. I just yeah. know. I don't know. But and then what do the different parasympathetic plexuses or plexi, you know, sitting over my chest and my stomach and my pelvis, what are they doing from an integrated standpoint? And yeah. do they have any receptive sort of rhythmic thing going on, much like you're talking about? So go ahead. Yes. Uh, Eugene Lipoff um, is is a great resource for both a physician who's an anesthesiologist who's done a lot of work on stellate ganglion block, which is yes. a nerve what, block. What's his in name the again? Uh, Eugene Lipoff, L-I-P-O-V. I think I've interviewed him on this show, and and he has hundred percent supposed success with PTSD or something, right? Uh, he has. I have been the subject. People have trained to do that procedure on the neck of. That's how good it is. Yeah. I let my colleagues do their first injection for SGB on me because I knew if they screwed it up, I wouldn't be pissed off and I'm not a patient. So practice first. <laughs> it works great. What did it do? It's extraordinarily effective. Uh, it's like Xanax with no cognitive impairment. And, and, and does it, is it persistent? Does it just break a thing or is it permanent? Three, three months or so of and, and profound I was wondering, relief. Does he just do it on one side? Both, Both sides. sides. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and do you, so you have a generalized anxiety thing like me? Nope. <laughs> I, no, I don't. Um, I, I just, I just wanted to let my colleague train, uh, on Got somebody it. who wasn't going to be upset if he screwed it up. Got it. And I'm did, a little did bit it like- change anything else. I'm just curious about the information that comes out of your body. And so it, and you work was your work different. We are your attunement different. So interesting. To me. It, it, I'm not a particularly anxious person. So it was oh. fascinating for me. Um, but, you know, because it like it changed a lot 
in that, like, but I'm not traumatized in, in, in a way that impairs me on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what it does is it lets you feel a stressful situation, but not have it grab you. Yeah. Yeah. And so you can understand that your heart is increasing, but the same, like, the, so the, does that the mean it, it's not getting to your thalamus or does, what does that mean? It's, it's kind of turning the gain knob down like I a see. compressor in an audio mm-hmm. studio on the volume of your sympathetic response. And so you'll be aware that it's time to be fearful, but not gripped with panic. Is your body responding differently? Well, so it's a, it's a conversation between your brain and the body the whole time. So yeah. the, the body reports like a little bit less fear to the brain and the brain's like, sweet, I can be less afraid of this. And then you can breathe more deeply, which is neuromodulation itself, thanks to mm-hmm. J receptors in the lungs. And you're able to control your brain's own fear. Mm. It's time to breathe easier this allergy season with Breathe Right Nasal Strips. With instant nasal congestion relief for up to 12 hours, you can spend your time on your terms, not on your noses. Stuffy nose from outdoor allergens? No problem. We got you. Allergy season just turned into stripping season. Instant relief from nasal congestion anytime, anywhere. Need more convincing? Click the banner below and get a free sample. Breathe right. Get your strip on. Use as directed. So let's flip over. I don't know why I feel like this is the right time to do that to your accelerated depression treatment. Yeah. Uh, uh, then we'll go back to mentalizing. So yeah. talk to me about that. So, uh, over the past, you know, hundred years, <laughs> it's a lot of neuroscience and it seemed like it didn't pay off. Right. We have, we have, uh, people who've been doing a lot of brain scans and not, not getting very far. And I was a real skeptic. Uh, and of what, what were you skeptical of that brain scans were going to get us anywhere. Ah, because all we were doing was just using different names and observations for the same old question, right? Mostly it was, it wasn't that it was that brain scans are really convincing, Mm. right? You put a brain scan next to any block of text that lights up and and it makes it 40% more believable. Right, 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 right. And, and so I was like, yeah, but these are small sample sizes on average and I don't see any outcomes and I know I'm more likely to be convinced. So I'm more likely to be skeptical. Mm. And, and I had colleagues like Deepak Sarpal at the University of Pittsburgh, who was a co-resident with me. And he was doing work in, in like his fourth year of residency <laughs> published in the American Journal of Psychiatry wow. uh, on, on functional connectivity, predicting length of stay in psychotic disorders. Mm. And I was like, okay, maybe there's something here. Mm. Um, and I got introduced. Uh, we had a brunch, Dr. Nolan Williams at Stanford, who I uh, encourage anyone listening who happens to be on the Nobel nominating committee to... Uh, submit Dr. Nolan Williams for the 2025 Nobel in science um, and medicine, because he was doing um, the same acceleration of transcranial magnetic stimulation that I was, but he was doing it with fMRI. Mm. And, and what we, you, we, tell me what you mean by accelerated. Yeah. So we, we have this, you know, non-invasive brain stimulation and it's basically a brain resynchronizer in the eighties. Uh, we figured out, okay, you can take an electromagnet and you can put it on your scalp and it will stimulate the brain and cause firing. And my classmate in 1999 was doing research at the, in college at the Max Planck Institute. She's like, hey, point it at your back of your head. You can see a light. Cool. Crazy. Mark George, who just you know, got a bunch of awards this year, took it and said, what happens if we move it over here? I left front and just do it, I don't know, 45 minutes, 10 hertz. Let's see what happens. Right. And depression got better. Right. 
Wow. And then we did the same goddamn thing to this day. It turns out that's not the only way to do it. And it's not the only target you can use. And when you do more and, and just like flashcards, right? You do a flashcard once a day, you'll learn a thing at a certain rate. And if you look at it once an hour, it's faster. Mm -hmm. And so Dr. Williams said, well, what happens when you do it once an hour? And I asked the same question independently and we had brunch and compare notes and oh gosh, it's better. It turns out you do it 10 times a day, five days in a row, and depression can be in remission. And when you train up an artificial intelligence machine learning engine to find exactly the right spot of, of blood flow uh, changes that are connected to that deep brain region, the subgenual cingulate that controls depression, you can get that depression to remission 79% of the time. Crazy. Yep. And you're published on this, I assume. I am, and so yep. is he. Yep, this has an FDA uh, breakthrough clearance. This is uh, paid for in the coming year by Medicare in acute care settings. And this week, uh, there's the uh, the AMA reviewed the CPT codes, and I look forward to positive news about whether those current procedural terminology codes that describe this treatment will be approved, but I hope so. Fascinating. So it's only for inpatients? No. <laughs> Well, you, said, you said in a structured environment or something, you said. So practically, how you get things paid for matters. And inpatient psychiatry is, is a joke um, in that it's a little bit like, you know, you admit someone for a heart attack and you say, I'm going to give you a drug that won't work for a month. And I'm going to watch you for seven days. And when I feel less anxious, I'm going to discharge you. <laughs> the, the data on inpatient psychiatry for depression with suicidality. You are 202,000% more likely to kill yourself in the hospital mm. and 212,000% more likely to kill yourself in the seven days after discharge and 30,000% more likely to kill yourself for the rest of your life. Now, how do we take out the confounding variable that the sickest people end up in the hospital? Somebody did a randomized control <laughs> trial. If you okay, good. It. And it and still in, was that high? Well, I mean, the, most of the, the scale of that data is from large-scale studies, um, but they've done one randomized control trial, and they did comparisons between locked and unlocked units over about 15 years in Germany. Mm. And the rates of elopement were identical, so you can run away whether there are locks or not. Mm. But the rates of completed suicide were higher. And, and you're correct. It's not that, like, you know, we randomize people and they're sicker people. Yeah, but if it was doing something helpful – those numbers wouldn't go in the wrong direction. Right, right. Right. So the only argument is that it's by chance that it's worse as opposed to, yeah, it's really doing something good. And it's important, like, yeah, we can, you know, kibitz all day long about whether the causality arrow is in the right direction, but there's literally no data that suggests it's helpful, only that it's between harmful and massively harmful. Uh, did, other than during residency, did you ever work in a psychiatric hospital? Of course I did. Yeah. And so what is the solution? Is it right. what we're doing with the hospitalized environment? So my yeah. argument is that, you know, I'm full disclosure. I'm a paid, but not very much consultant for Magnus Medical, um, uh, which is the company that commercialized Dr. Williams work. And uh, their uh, efforts thus far have gotten what's called a new technology add-on payment. Yeah. Um, and that that's the same payment system we used to get biventricular pacemakers, ECMO, every fancy thing you've ever seen in a hospital yeah, yeah. for years, but psychiatry didn't have the same budgeting. Right. And we just wouldn't pay for anything new in psych. 
And now we will. And this is the first thing. And, and so do you, but back to my original question, do they yeah. need to be in a structured environment while no. you're administering this? No. Did you say something like that? It's acute. You said acute care. So where yeah. you can get it paid for and where it should best be done are different questions. <laughs> so practically people come to hospitals when they're in distress. Yeah. And so we want to make sure that hospitals have access to this treatment. Okay. And so we lobbied and hard uh, to get this accessible using a brand new payment pathway, using new technology add-on payments, which previously had only been used for, you know, ICUs. And we said, can we please, please, please get this to apply to psychiatric care settings? And CMS said yes this year, August 1st. Congratulations. Thank you. Hopefully that will benefit people. I'm sure it will. Yep. But let's go back to the psychiatric setting, which is, you know, not just major depressive disorders, right? Yeah. What do you think we need to do there? And that's it's kind of a huge topic because look out yep. on the streets of every city and those are all psychiatric patients being treated without psychiatrists, yep. which is yep. sh- shocking, but keep, all day long. What do you and, think? And what so you brought think? us to this part of the conversation by saying, well, let's talk about that trauma thing and how it connects this depression thing. So look, step one is we got an FDA cleared treatment for major depressive disorder, but the brain has other regions. And so if you were to find the amygdala and target downregulation of your fear response, well, that would be a treatment for PTSD. Have you tried that? Yep. Does it work? Yep. There you go. Is there already an FDA cleared medical device called the uh, PRISM system by Gray Matters uh, Health that a month and a half ago got approved? Also, yes. Uh, Was that a postdoctoral fellow from Dr. Williams' lab who did some of that initial work? Also, yes. And that's just an EEG that trains your brain to downrate your amygdala, downregulate it, using the same fMRI synchronization between, in this case, EEG, so your brain is its own stimulator, and, and a different brain region. So, How do we scale this stuff up? Because you're talking about holding people for two days, 10 hours a day, three so days? I've been doing this in the outpatient setting, and all yeah. this research has been done in the outpatient setting the whole time. And practically, doing a treatment that is done in five days is better than one that takes six weeks. Okay. And if you can get well enough to get out of the hospital, it's even better. And so I would argue, you know, wherever you land, you should get the most effective treatment first line. And you should be able to get out of a restrictive setting if that's where you happen to go first as soon as possible. And that requires scaling this up. You're correct. And that requires paying for it. But but it, it's that's a piece of scaling it up, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's like the equipment needs to be built. I assume it needs to. It, be- it all exi- it's all existing. It's all it's all here. There's there's a thousand pieces of equipment out there that we can just distribute yep. to, to yeah, almost, almost exactly and more. Well, that's yeah. interesting. And and so that there's there's purchasing the equipment. That's the practitioner's responsibility, and then the reimbursement comes on the heels of that. Great, great points that I'm not going to answer for my, my, my partners in, in, in capital. But I can say that, look, once there's a payment model that takes advantage of people getting well, yeah, uh, which is not what we have currently <laughs> yeah, at all. For sure. Right? Um, but, you know, a, a psychiatric illness, depression, for example, drives up general medical spend 44%. Right. So hey. it's it's a risk to healthcare enterprises that make no, money I, on I them. I get it. I, I, I get it. And it's if it's reimbursed properly, it'd be well worth the expense. And you know, if the outcomes are the way, as 
proved to be con- continuing you're saying. I already have independent validation with $150,000 on the line, if you can prove me wrong, <laughs> that this works in OCD as well. Well, that makes perfect sense for me because mm-hmm. we kind of know that's a, where that biology operates. Yep. Interesting. And so that, that's next. And it's al- it already exists. It's already, it doesn't have the same FDA clearance, but we did have Al Lewis, who wrote the book on savings in healthcare, look at that data. And if you, you know, buy the product, which is access for your employees, um, you get, uh, you know, indemnification on, on having violated mental health parity, uh, which is nice if you're an employer. And if you're a person, then you don't have to pay for it, which is all I care about. I'm sure the conversation when you talk about this stuff very quickly goes to hallucinogenics because people are, you know, similarly interested in sort of curative kind of interventions. Before yep. we get there, though, um, you used the term functional connectivity. I'm not sure I knew what yep. you meant by that. Can you tell and me? And neither did I. <laughs> okay. Right. So uh, it's a, it's a, it sounds like connections between areas and what it means is synchronization. Okay. Um, and so Got the it. way we measure it is we, we take a video of the brain, which is looking at how much oxygen you pull off of hemoglobin in your blood in any with given part of the brain. With a pet? Uh, we do it with fMRI. So fMRI. it's cha- okay. change in, in bold signal for nerds. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can do it with FGG pet also, but it's easier to do it with this. Um, I, I was a research subject in my 20s and I had uh, J. John Mann uh, stick a lumbar puncture needle in my spine and Ramin Parsi stick me in a PET scan. Because yeah. I, w- I was a suicidal 20-year-old. Interesting. And you've been yes. a guinea pig. You've been a, a willing guinea pig for quite I've, some time. Too. I volunteered. Um, I found out about this treatment uh, originally in this is my fourth year residency at Hillside. And mm. I got depressed um, right towards the end. And I was about to go to fellowship at NYU. And I go see Mike Dolchin, who's my doctor in New York forever, and say, what do I do? And he's like, well, I go see this kooky guy across town. If TMS works... You know, that's easy to recreate. I'm like, look, I do whatever you say. And so I did it. And seven days later, I was back at work and like, are you kidding me? Mm. What is this? Interesting. I had Maria Akendo, the head of the American Psychiatric Association, as my research study doctor. And none of the things worked until this. Do you have to come off meds prior to the treatment or do you wait for the treatment response and then you taper down? How do you do that? So you uh, you don't have to come off of anything. Uh, I think tapering is something you have to do slowly. Of course. Uh, oftentimes patients just stop and they tell me later and they're like, oh, shucks. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Thanks for letting me know. Yeah. Now they're, and they're um, having zaps up the back of their neck and into their forehead. <laughs> Good time. I, uh, I am a consultant to a company called Outro Health, which is working on that very problem right now. Is that, um, is that something with pharmacology or with? Uh, yeah, it just really slow tapers. There should be some sort of countervailing pharmacology we could put in, it seems to me. I mean, my big hope is that since Wagovi, the drug for weight gain, costs so much money, it now makes sense to not prescribe things that make you gain weight. Right. Um, And so I think like the great thing about this accelerated brain stimulation treatment, no weight gain, no drugs, no need to get off of drugs, no need to augment drugs that don't work. None of it. It's time to breathe easier this allergy season with Breathe Right Nasal Strips. With instant nasal congestion relief for up to 12 hours, you can spend your time on your terms, not on your noses. Stuffy nose from outdoor allergens? No problem. We got you. Allergy season just turned into stripping season. Instant relief from nasal congestion anytime, anywhere. Need more convincing? 
click the banner below and get a free sample. Breathe right. Get your strip on. Use as directed. So let's swing back back around to hallucinogenics. What, what, yeah. what do we? I mean, I'm worried that that that's being so wildly used with no, you know, sort of adverse understanding. You, you and me both. Yeah. Um, now that having been said, so I've never used a psychedelic medicine, uh, you know, recreationally in my life. Um, I have no idea uh, what it's like personally, other than having been treated with intravenous ketamine for a depressive episode once. And that was, you know, what it was. Have you, have you though seen what I saw, which is a lot of neuropsychiatric protean effects of hallucinogens of all type so uh, yes and you know again full disclosure i've been a principal investigator with mind medicine Mm -hmm. um for uh research studies around safety and monitoring technology those papers are coming out shortly one of them's in preprint good um but i'm really interested in the empirical question of for whom how much and it is safe and effective Right. And how do we monitor these treatments? And I think the answer is AI, Uh, just like we're using AI to determine that target in the brain um, for the saint treatment. I think we're going to use AI to monitor the effects of psychedelic treatments uh, in the clinic setting and maybe even after to Mm. reduce the risk of adverse effects. But again, the risk there is they're biasing. And so any compound that you take. Uh, that makes you believe that there's a divine universal consciousness yes. is something that's going to bias your judgment. Right. And so the, the reason I haven't, you know, experimented other than, you know, being busy is I don't want to bias myself before these things are well understood. I, I understand that. But not, not only that, but I, there's an ethical issue here that, that I find just astonishing isn't, isn't more top of mind, which is, you know, a lot of the particularly old literature goes says things like, well, there were personality changes, but they seem much happier. It's like, wait a minute. You gave somebody a chemical and changed who they are? Are you fucking kidding me? That is a incredibly powerful uh, ethical responsibility that personally, I, I don't know what circumstances it would be okay to do that. Uh, so that's always worried me, that, that piece. Yeah particular for and and the mood stuff and and i've seen these very bizarre syndromes where people like can't take care of themselves anymore it's not really even depression they just lose their ability to function Mm -hmm. do you talk about it so there's a difference between a a a normal healthy control let's say yeah uh going to the amazon having a great time um and a psychiatric illness where the where the benefits and risks can be sort of adjudicated that's correct that's right. That's that's my feeling too. These are potent treatments, and we can't like forty percent of people who who have uh, you know exposure to psilocybin will believe in lizard consciousness afterwards. Forty percent. Yeah. Huh. Now, is that a fair trade for not being crippled by trauma or depression? For some people, yes. Yeah. Will that be true for everybody? No. Do yeah. I want more effective treatments? Yes. Should we take those things seriously? Also, yes. I agree. We're, we're in hundred percent agreement on this and, we, and we'll see, we'll see where it goes. Yeah. I'm you know, you have colleagues and I do too, that think it's exceptional that they, they swear by, it. I don't know what they're swearing by exactly, but they claim to be able to 
break through in ways that nothing else does, whatever well, that is. I'm, I'm interested in the data, yeah. <laughs> right? Because you're feeling that you broke through and the fact that you broke through are independently measurable and different things. 100%. So now let's flip back to mentalizing, which is an entirely, well, it isn't really the different domain, but but it's, but it's a different way of accessing right. domain yeah. ideas. And and so how do you put put it all together for people? Yeah. And 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 I guess the the clinician's question is, you know, when do you use each of these things, and when do you use something else? Right. Uh, and so, go ahead. So that very same thing, uh, th- th- that five HD two A receptor mutation three hundred million years ago, we got an extra copy that let jawed bony fishes do their dance. You you've used a couple of different terms in describing what that gene gene uh, amplification did. You you've said synchronization. Yeah. But and you've also used some other words that were not well functional connectivity for one, and and yeah. and I, I, these are different words for me. Like yeah. for instance, how do fireflies all synchronize eventually? Some mm-hmm. of that thematics, right? So, so so talk to me. Yeah, so I'm a musician uh, originally. Uh, my my cousin's a master engineer uh, of of some repute. Chris Athens does a lot of good hip hop. Um, and so I came to all of this from, from music. You can see my synthesizer behind me. And polyrhythms and, and harmony, you hear a major chord and it sounds triumphant. Yes. And that's the ratio of four against five against six. What, what ratio? Of the, the notes in a major chord have a ratio of sounds no matter what the chord is. And if it sounds triumphant, it's because one note is, you know, four times whatever, four times 100, five times 100, and six times 100. Those are the, the frequencies. Oh, this frequ- that, okay, got it. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And those frequencies get heard by our ear, yeah. broken down into those different you know, fundamentals, and understood by our brain. Yeah. And that feels triumphant. Correct. I think that metaphor of the feeling of triumphantness being a ratio of rhythms turns out to be literally true. Okay, and well, so we're representing that, patterns of firing in our brain that tri- so I, the feeling triumph is that rhythm. So is it why let's kind of, let's kind of unpack that a little further. Is it why the wave is so gratifying in a, in a, in a stadium and why yep. coming into a stadium and applauding together has this sort of a, something that other things don't, is it, it's just, this is a completely, we love it, but this is a completely like record scratch kind of question which is, is that also how we get hysterias and uh, horrible behaviors? You got and it. And everything else? Okay. Yep. Are there certain, okay, now, now I want to get into a little bit. Are there certain personalities, and if so, how does that fit into all this, that are more prone to that stuff? So everybody is worse at mentalizing, being curious in a group. So if you want to get anyone to do something terrible, put a bunch of them together. And everybody's brain gets a little bit less curious about other minds in a group. We just synchronize. We synchronize. We love synchronizing. Everything we enjoy as humans. Sex, high bandwidth sensory cortex in sync. Yeah. Music, moving, all of it, dancing, everything we love, the wave, yeah. shouting. In a, that's just us synchronizing with other us. Yeah. And we love it. It yeah. feels great. And, and, that feeling is represented in our brain by a pattern of firing. Of course. And so the treatment I'm talking about with Saint is a pattern of firing. Wait, hold and on. The, Skip yeah. my 
happen? Or, well, I, Not yet. We're getting there. Because okay. mentalizing is the same thing. So if you have certain personalities who are better or worse at synchronizing, yes. So tell me about that. And I know there, and there are, we, you and I both know there, there are definitely personalities that are better or worse at mentalizing. Yes. So I'll give you an example. Um, someone who is particularly uh, antisocial, but not a psychopath. Psychopaths can't, they don't feel fear in the same way. And so there isn't the distress for them around bad things happening. Quickly, again, I want to just make sure we're super accurate in everything we talk about. People understand what we're talking about because we're using a little bit of shorthand, I think, here and there. And, and um, so people disagree about psychopathy versus uh, mm-hmm. uh You're tilting the way I go, which is the psychopathy is a genetic thing with a deficiency in feeling states. A, a yep. mm-hmm. deficiency. Yeah. Psychopaths are people that often are severely injured and don't really care about other people's feelings. So early on, someone who had the genetic predisposition got in an environment that taught them you're going to need to be abruptly violent or a liar or something. And there are some people who are just better at lying and working you over. Yeah. Some of them feel bad in their own lives when they can't use lying and working someone over to connect. Mm. And so you can be, you know, a nasty liar, but really want to get it right with your kid. Okay. And though that's, you, you may be better at imagining someone's mind in the context of lying to get them to give you stuff when you're trying to rob them. Sociopath now. No. Psychopath too. Okay. You, so some, it's a fluctuating state. So psychopaths mentalize too. I wasn't sure they did. Okay. They do, but they don't, they don't have the same fear response that it's a, it's a rare condition. I understand. Right? Rare, so they don't, they don't connect. 1%. That's millions of people. <laughs> Relatively rare, right? That's, those are the individuals who don't get helped by yeah. this therapy. Yes. But if you want to help someone not be a, a, a distressing liar to others, and incapable of helping their own life for themselves, uh, you want them to be able to successfully synchronize, not just have a self-serving representation of another, but have one that's accurate. Okay. And when you do that, you'd feel bad if you hurt them. Right. And it's getting that, people to feel bad again for bad things and feel that, good for good things. That's mentalizing, right? Yeah, that's yep. what it does. Now, my recollection is, again, you're way deeper in this stuff than I am, obviously, and I, and I just, I am enraptured with this conversation because uh, <laughs> yeah. it's stuff I love. And it's fun since, for me, too. Since my days back in the Pioneer Valley, the first neuroscience course by Steve George was taught to me. Mine, too. No, no, no. The first neuroscience ever on campus. Yes, I know. And I had the same class. Oh, really? I'm yeah, the- years later. You're well, I, okay. Got it. But there must've been much other stuff that he was teaching too, right? Later. He and Sorensen. Yeah. Yeah. We, we just had the one. <laughs> and it was, it was crazy. So, so um, he, my recollection is that one of Fonagy's in, in addition to his partner and the violent men and, and the stuff we're just really talking about here, but he was very interested in the borderline personality disorder. If, if I, my memory serves me. Correct. How, uh, what's going on there? You know, borderlines are seemingly more common these days. They're a source of great frustration clinically. What are you doing there? Uh, My my take on it. So I'm, uh, you know, again, built my career on this. So bias. This being Uh, mentalization based treatment. I have uh, a manual with Springer Nature 
adolescent suicide and self-injury colon mentalizing theory and treatment. And, and I think borderline personality disorder and, you know, John Gunderson, I, I had dinner at his house. He was my wife's supervisor. He trained me uh, in, in his approach. And I actually had John Gunderson at my first MBT training with Bateman and Fonagy. MB. Uh, yeah. The, the, the therapy version of mentalizing. Yeah. And, uh, and I had actually the DBT for adolescence creators, Jill Rathus and Alec Miller there too. And we all sucked at once. <laughs> it's like watching Yoda fight with a lightsaber, seeing Fonagy do this stuff. How could you be so curious? But what we learned was for borderline personality disorder, well, it's a disorder in a context, right? Just like it's a disorder to have a Lamborghini in Colorado in a snowstorm, right? Your friends with Subarus will, will rip on you for being such a terrible driver, but really it's the wrong car for the snowstorm up the hill. And the way I think about these context things, I think about it evolutionarily, right? There's a, there's a reason these things evolved, period. Yep. Mm -hmm. So go ahead. And it's good in the population to have some people right. who, in the right circumstances, are in a Ferrari. And other people who can get up the hill in a Subaru. And other people with OCD who wash their hands too much and they survive a pandemic. Yes. And, and so, exactly. In an invalidating environment where you're, you know, gaslit, told you're wrong, etc. from an early age, you're going to be more vulnerable to some things and better at others. By the way, I've had a theory on alcoholism forever that, 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 because I noticed it in my patients, they, they are just incredible survivors. There's a reason that stays fixed genetically. They, they are mm -hmm. at surviving and mm -hmm. extreme circumstances, make yep. fighter pilots and shortstops and things. I'm sure there are other psychopathologies that have similar stuff. They were ready for both the environments that made them more successful and extra ready for the alcohol that would prove to be so rewarding it would take over their lives. And that was my dad. Mm, mm, mm. He, was, he, was, he was great at everything but saying no to alcohol. Yeah, but that's, the, he, that's, not, that's not why it evolved. That's the yeah. side effect that now develops. But it's so powerful. That, but but there's, I, I always try to explain this to these folks, which is that – it's it's such a powerfully beneficial gene. It does not wash out of the genome ever. It stays fixed at ten percent. Yeah, it if it was going to be uh, impairing, it would have been selected against long ago. Long ago. So let's go back to uh, borderline. So keep going. Yeah, and so borderline personality disorder is an impairment in There's the context of feeling misunderstood. Huh. And if you want to know what that looks like, just look at Kevin Roos's, you know, initial interview with Sydney, where a thing with no mind, you know, which is the AI for, you know, the initial chat GPT, you know, wanted to marry him or, or kill or kill herself, right? The, the AI. And I think when you only respond to reward and you don't have a concept of a mind, you go to the extremes. You go to, I love you or I'm going to kill myself. And humans with BPD are clawing for response from others and they get it they get attention and they learn to do more things that are maladaptive according to us and maybe according to them but they're getting rewarded for those behaviors in contexts that end up not being good for them and causing suffering and they though have this incredible capacity we call projective identification mm -hmm. that's an uncanny that to me is a wild capacity and and i i i don't know if we should be trying to harness it, or, or, you know well, what I we mean? Don't, we don't have a choice because, you know, I think that there is a, a, a better world in the future where people 
learn that as a standard, you can be more kind and curious. Hmm. In that context, the people who had borderline personality disorder don't have an impairment. They get along just fine. And many people with BPD, uh, in fact, most will get to remission of their symptoms and not even have a diagnosable disorder. They will often have impairments in, in, in functioning. But many of them end up being psychiatrists or psychologists or therapists or other kinds of professionals. And there are colleagues. The problem is they be also become lawyers and judges and things. And, and <clears throat> narcissistic rage emerges. And, mm -hmm. right? Another highly heritable personality disorder. The heritability of narcissistic personality disorder is 71%. Hmm. Hello, I'm Rabia Chaudhary. I invite you to join me every Tuesday for new episodes of Nighty Night, Bedtime Stories to Keep You Awake, now on Podcast One. This new incarnation of Nighty Night is an anthology of stories that bring to life classic horror stories, some you're definitely familiar with, and others you'll be hearing for the first time. Join me as I tuck you into bed with stories that will leave you sleepless all night long. Get new episodes of Nighty Night every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. But we, you know, we you, people t throw around the NPD term narcissistic, mm -hmm. or but really the the sort of wave we're in is is in cluster B traits, right? Isn't that more what's happening these days that that we seem to have come into? <sighs> I, well, let me put it this way: bad, bad, not good research. <laughs> like not enough to say. My we don't take it seriously. But I, well, let me tell you my anecdote, which is that you know I started working at Saint Hospital in 1984, 85, something like that, and the Axis II diagnoses, which is the personality disorders, were all over the place. A, B, C, everything was always you know represented. I saw all kinds of things I I've not seen since. And about by nineteen, by ninety two, it was sort of shifting. There was a big wave of borderline, and then by the end of the nineties, it was only cluster B. That's all you saw was cluster B. Now. You could argue that maybe the psychiatrist had a bias or were they calling everybody cluster. I, I don't know what was going on, but I definitely watched that happen in real time and definitely saw the borderlines stepping in. And at the time, the borderline disordered patients, females primarily, were running amok with the legal system. They were the ones with the, they, uh, they, each one came in with a minimum of 20 lawsuits under their belt. And that's when the legal system sort of caught on to that and started slapping that down. I'm using that term intentionally because there's actually slap laws to prevent these things. And, and, and then they became the lawyers and the, and the regulators and things. And, and so what are your thoughts on this, whether it's just what attracts people it's like <laughs> So I, I have some very strong thoughts, and I've been stalked for years mm. uh, by the mother of a patient um, who I have a current active legal matter uh, in, against, so I'm not going to go into it, obviously. Um, but I've been stalked for years, and if anyone's Googling me, uh, they're going to see it. Um, and her daughter had been, you know, treated by every august person in the field, John Gunderson himself, uh, you know, supervised this, this case. Um, and, and, you know, she, she was the, the patient and she's in the Atlantic monthly. This is again, public. Uh, and she was quoted as saying, nobody wants to see someone suicidal like me. Mm. I've been in the hospital for a decade on and off. If I kill myself, it's going to mess them up. And plus they're going to get sued. Mm. And that was before I ever saw her and she was right. Mm. And so I think there is a maladaptive quality for some people with these problems where they'll get in trouble and they'll want to lash out. 
And the patient wasn't the person with the problem here. It was, it was the parent at the end of the day. And I think we're seeing a lot of that with, you know, these documentaries about Munchausen's by proxy, yeah. et cetera. And we don't, you know, even with having been stalked, which is not fun, I promise you, I imagine you have also, frankly, I can't imagine someone hasn't stalked someone, you know, who has a public personnel like you because they have a parasocial relationship. They imagine they know you. You've been on the air for years. If you're unwell, you can imagine Dr. Drew is your friend or your enemy. Yeah. And that sucks, but we're not coming at that with compassion or seriousness. Right. That's what I want to get at because, because I, I've sort of just, I sort of laid it out in a kind of pejorative. Mm-hmm. And I, and I don't know any other way of saying what, what I just said. Mm-hmm. Think about it pejoratively, because I, for instance, I do very well with borderlines and treatment. I, I, I deeply empathize with them. I see what they do to themselves mm-hmm. and around them, and they are their own worst enemy, and they suffer tremendously. And, and then they get better because they feel understood. And they get better. That's right. I, that's why I do well with them, because I, I can contain them, right? I help mm-hmm. contain. I get them off drugs. And, and I and I have compassion. And, and mm-hmm. I can help regulate through sort of men. I use a kind of a mentalizing technique automatically. That's sort of what I do. Yeah. I don't do anything long-term with patients. I just am trying to get them in the frame of regulation. Um, and so is, does that fact, uh, and you tilted at that a little bit just a second ago, give us a model for how to help people and how to, how to regulate the society really where people are acting out? And so I think it does. Um, there, there's a paper coming out really soon. I think it's actually in preprint already called Quantifying the Effects of Psychotherapy at Scale, where I was the principal investigator uh, along with the team at Mind Medicine. And that, that psychedelic drug development company acquired a, a, a machine learning clinical trials company called Health Mode. And now the chief medical officer, Dan Carlin, um, it, who's been a friend for years um, and was an you know, addiction psychiatrist, ran the first kind of addiction AI play uh, called Column Health. Uh, and now you know, built the nightwear device for PTSD nightmares. Really smart guy. And he and I were talking about six or seven years ago and said, you know, we really need to create a dashboard for psychotherapy. We need to help therapists understand what's happening in a session and pr- prompt them at, for what to say. Mm. Now, that same tool, which we were publishing on the, the pilot of building already, it's out. Right? We're waiting for it to go through the final review process. But the the paper on the feasibility of running that study is out. And that doesn't just have to stay with therapists. You can help anybody have a better thing to say in the moment. That's FaceTime a, plus feelings prompt, yeah. you know? Yeah, I, I worry about things like that being overly relied upon because so much of what we, we talked about earlier is body to body, you know, sort of feeling felt stuff. Mm-hmm. And things occur to you um, and things come into the room that aren't about words necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there but is. If- if you had a distressed family member and yeah. you didn't have the skill set you did and your text messaging could help. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I get it. I, I get it. It'd be helpful. Yeah. No, no, I, I'm not saying it wouldn't be helpful. It would be helpful for sure. Yeah. And it's a nice way to standardize what would be helpful because we have a lot of bullshit out there all over the place. It's a lot of work to get there. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, we are, you have been very kind with your time and I still have some sort of kind of, maybe global questions. Um, I mean, I I can't come back. (laughs) Yeah, I'll bring you back. Trust me. This has been a great conversation. Uh, And and I think I need to refer you some patients, by the way. So I've got some ideas. I still see some. Is there somebody out here doing stuff? So 
So uh, among my gigs, and I'll plug them, uh, I'm, a, I'm the Senior Vice President for Strategy at Acacia Clinics up in Sunnyvale, California. Uh, I, I have colleagues in Los Angeles, so we'll be having things to say there soon. Um, I'm in Brooklyn, New York at a practice called Fermata. Um, Fermata.health is the website. Um, and we're doing this accelerated TMS work, but we also you know, do this work around mentalization-based treatment and these other next-generation interventions. But um, I'm, a, I'm a big effect size maxi. Right? Does it create a big difference? And therapy does. Accelerated neuronavigated TMS does. And I think other things will. And, and I look forward to figuring out which are the right ones for which people. So um, LA, getting there. Uh, Sunnyvale, California, yes. Can we do those evaluations by telehealth right now and fly you to where you need to be? Also, yes. Coming to an employer benefits plan near you? Also, yes. Interesting. Two, two last sort of big and maybe unfair questions and maybe for our next conversation. One is you've, you've, you've uh, indicted the psychiatric hospital system and yet we do need some sort of structured system of containment and uh, therapeutics. Is, is the missing piece really a social model sort of step down top to bottom kind of system? Do you, do you I, like I that? think, I, I think, the first thing that you need to do is ask the very serious question, is this helpful to the people it's intended to help and listen when they answer? But 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 um, when you're talking to people that may have distortions and anastignosia and all kinds of crazy stuff, it, 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 I, I hear lots of, uh, well, let's put it this way. I'm not saying the present system is helpful. I'm saying, mm-hmm. I'm asking what we do. What do how do we change yeah. And so I think like none of it changes for the better if we're not willing to listen to our patients. Yeah. And I think, you know, we tend to write off people who have psychosis, for example, um, as, ah, they're crazy. Yeah, but sometimes they have good points about what helped and what didn't. 100%. Uh, John Kane has done tremendous work over the years, you know, with clozapine, with, you know, a pill with a chip in it to tell if you swallowed it. And everyone assumed no one with schizophrenia would want that. It turns out they want to be well, just like everybody else. And if the treatment helps them keep track of their symptoms, they want it, even if it's a chip and a pill. And and so I think listening to our patients seriously about the things that they can tell us, that's a step. And if things aren't helpful, we shouldn't do them. (laughs) And if there are helpful things, you know, and it's a longer conversation, I think they do a better job in the UK, some better job in Australia, Germany, for example, has some pretty robust systems. But just being honest about like, does this actually help? Yes, no. By how much, and can we do better? And then when we can, we should. Thousand percent. And and my fear though is we're, we do nothing. You know, we sort of throw up our hands and yeah. and, and and then what we do do is sort of inadequate and sort of weird. And I would agree. Yeah. So last question, and maybe this, you tell me whether this is something that um, has to be brought up in another context, another conversation. I'm guessing you have thoughts about consciousness. Yes. Uh, can you give me your, your thoughts in the remaining time? <laughs> yeah. Um, so all these experiences that we talked about, uh, and this functional connectivity, yeah. all of that is taking our sensory experience and processing it and it presenting it to our consciousness. Yes. And so we're getting an edited interpretation of whatever reality is. And the real like step we can all take to understand each other better is recognizing that everyone gets different editing. Right. So like, I think Zoom has been the most instructive for me. When someone's camera goes out, I can't see you. Right. I know that happened. And for our patients with with disorders, 
their emotional camera on someone else's mind goes out, but we don't have access to that. Yes. And when they look panicked, it's because they are. Mm. And, and accepting that their experience could be different from ours lets us get access, I hope a little bit quicker, to the compassion, to be curious about, well, what happened there in that moment? And that lets us get kind of over the bridge of understanding because once you don't assume that the reality you saw is the only possible experience because there's so much editing of consciousness on the way in and out, uh, then you can have a, oh, you thought, I thought I didn't like you. And that's why I didn't see you at Starbucks. I was at the other Starbucks on the same street and it was a misunderstanding that we're now understanding. And you said presented to consciousness, but we really didn't define what consciousness (laughs) is and and I'll, that's a that's a separate episode but yeah okay that's what i was afraid of. Yeah, yeah okay i i just i i just have this fundamental belief that we need to stop thinking about consciousness in terms of one skull i think i think it is it is okay yeah yeah, yeah. And, and and i'd argue the reason we have to is because the cheat code that has let humans be so successful as a species is this ability to synchronize within our minds and between minds which is energetically like you can't uncrack an egg Thermodynamics, it's impossible. That takes entropy in reverse. You can't imagine uncracking an egg. And you can work together based on imagining something to do something extraordinary. Yes, yes. And, but by the same token, I, I don't believe that a feral child that enters the woods at one and comes out at 14 would have something we would call consciousness. We are co-created. Yep, that's it. That, that's sy- what I wanted sim- to hear you say. That's symbolic it. representations of our experience. We hang on to together or we fall apart alone. It really is. It's back to the mentalizing thing. It's it's what's presented to us. And Fonagy got into that very deeply. You know, with the mother child thing before languages developed. Mm-hmm. Oh, that creates something. <laughs> this yep. this something. A, a billion percent. And and you know the effect size. Just to compare it, right? We have these drugs. You know, Abilify has a 0.2 effect size when you add it to an antidepressant, and and that's the equivalent of adding like point. If it was a height medicine, we'd be adding like 0.4 inches mentalization therapy you know you take a manualized version of this ability to be curious 1.26 which would be adding on the order of three and a half inches to someone's height and this accelerated neurofeedback would be four and a half inches taller and so i kind of argue for the skilo standard of i wish i was a little bit taller but i really wish i was a baller and we should be looking for interventions that can do a big deal when it comes to change and i think that kind of therapy that restores your ability to hold on to yourself is massively powerful. I'm going to screw up these numbers, but I, if I'm right, uh, statins have about a 1.2. Yep. Uh, and and prescribing a benzodiazepine has like a 3.5 or 8 or something probability of demise. <laughs> so- yeah. Yeah. A- a- Ambien's got a relative risk of 1.7 for severe head injury. Yeah, I think it's <laughs> for death. <laughs> it's so it's one point six for death in yeah. older people, and one point like seven for death in younger people, and head well, injury on top of it. It's bonkers are, stuff. Yeah, those are huge numbers. People have to yes. understand that, and these are things we do all the time. And they they just and yeah. forget people need to understand, physicians need to understand that. Yeah, and uh, I don't think that. I, unfortunately, you, I'm not. Sure <laughs> colleagues are all thinking. When you really want to get down the rabbit hole next time, I have a whole like hypothesis around autoimmunity 
and how that plays a role in these processes. And I think, for example, we've had a massive inoculation, all of us, with either a COVID vaccine or a spike protein from the virus. And all of that is an active immunological agent that's causing neuropsychiatric changes at massive scale. Well, um, you just made me realize where I'm going to bring you back. I, I do a streaming, a live streaming show where where I'm I'm we're trying to tackle some of these issues. You have a big audience that's just interested in what is going on here and why aren't yeah. we more? I mean, I'm, I spend every day going, why aren't we understanding what's in the excess death data? Why, why don't we understand that? What is going on here? Uh-huh. And, uh, and so I'm very open-minded about, it. I don't have an opinion. I, cause I don't have the data. I don't know what's going on. And that is astonishing to me uh-huh. that we're you know, three years post pandemic and, and we, I, we don't know what's going on. I, I, what what is what is going on that we don't know what's going on? That that's that's my question right now. So listen, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you onto that thing, uh, and we'll talk in more detail about that. You threw out a lot of places where you want people to find you. Do it now in a concise way. Uh, uh, the Frontier Psychiatrist com uh, is the the website, and I've got all the stuff linked on there. So I, I have a podcast, which is the same name. Uh, you know, Spotify. I even have. I'm a musician, so I have albums on Spotify. Owen Muir is my name, and you can go search it. Videos on YouTube, same channel name, uh, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, so thank you all for being here, and we'll see you next time. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Doctor Drew podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice. Or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com.